afternoon. I'm John Falcicchio, Deputy Mayor for Planning and Economic Development, and I wanted to welcome you to the Recovery Weekly Check-In uh, with DEMPED. Uh, today is Tuesday, September 29th, and we have a number of topics to talk about today uh, about our progress since last week. Uh, just a reminder to folks, if you haven't yet, uh, if you are uh, operating a streetery, we have the streetery winter ready uh, grant program, uh, which is being administered by the Mayor's Office of Nightlife and Culture. If you haven't had an opportunity, uh, check out coronavirus.dc.gov slash recovery hyphen business. And that's where you can find information about the Shrewdery Winter Ready Grant Program. So be sure to check that out. Also today, uh, the mayor unveiled legislation uh, to strengthen our certified business enterprise uh, program, uh, which is run by the Department of Small Local Business Development. That legislation will help us kind of tighten the requirements for uh, businesses to be a certified business enterprise, as well as make it more clear about what will happen if a prime contractor uh, doesn't uh, meet the CBE threshold. So that uh, legislation can be found at the Department of Small and Local Business Development. Uh, at, uh, so it's, L excuse me, DSLBD dc.gov where you can find more information about that legislation uh, but today's topic for the weekly check-in is food security and food insecurity uh, so i'm joined by ono bacchus who's the food policy director in the office of planning uh, she's going to present uh, the food access and food security in the district of columbia report uh, which is how the which will outline how the district is responding to the COVID 19 public health emergency and food security so uh, Ona has some community partners with us that she'll introduce and then present on the report which was released today. Thanks, John. Um, happy to be here. I'm Ona Balkis. I'm the Food Policy Director at the DC Office of Planning and I lead the DC Food Policy Council. I'm pleased to be joined today by three amazing community partners. Murray Lopez-Holmes, the Deputy Chief Program Officer at Martha's Table. Chris Bradshaw, the Executive Director of Dreaming Out Loud, and Mike Curtin, the Executive Director of DC Central Kitchen. I'm going to present on our new report and then turn it over to them to tell you more about their work. So uh, the food security in the district report um, was released um, today. It was a report required by the Coronavirus Support Emergency Amendment Act of 2020. And in accordance with that law, uh, the report uh, evaluates and makes recommendations about food access during the COVID-19 public health emergency, including looking at food insecurity rates during the public health emergency and outlining a plan for how to address those food needs. Next slide. So first, uh, I'll go over a high-level overview of our data, which I go into, which we go into more detail in the full report. Nationally, food insecurity doubled uh, between 2018 and June of 2020 from about 11% to almost 22%. Um, for uh, the annual year 2020, Feeding America and a national anti-hunger organization forecast that uh, the food insecurity rate will be 16.7%, which is about one in six Americans. Next slide. The district food insecurity rates reflect those national trends. So we saw about a double, a doubling of food insecurity here in the district um, from a pre-COVID rate of 10.6% to a June 2020 rate of 20, a little over 21%. For 2020, uh, the forecasted food insecurity rate in the district is about 16% or 113,000 of our neighbors. Um, rates are even higher among children, um, a little, under one in three children, or about 37,000 children in the district um, could be food insecure this year. Next slide. Um, this slide um, shows maps from the Capital Area Food Bank 2020 Hunger Report. Um, the slide on the left shows pre-COVID food insecurity, um, which I think highlights that um, this was a challenge that many district residents faced before the public health emergency. Food insecurity is a symptom of poverty, a symptom of systemic racism. Um, and the map on the right shows how much COVID-19 exacerbated food insecurity um, really in every neighborhood of the district. And um, we really don't see any neighborhood not impacted. Um, the deep red um, uh, census tracts that you see mostly in wards five, seven, and eight um, are experiencing food insecurity at a little under 30%. So about one in three 
um, residents in those tracks are experiencing food insecurity, um, it's really pervasive. Next slide, please. Um, we see that disproportionate uh, geographic impact reflected in some of our district programs. Um, the district grocery bag program, um, which I'll talk about later, um, has seen the highest demand in wards one, seven, and eight. Um, same with our grab-and-go school meal program um, with the highest demand in one, seven, and eight, um, and six. Next slide. Uh, we see a disproportionate impact of food insecurity by population. Um, black households in the district are 13 times more likely to experience food insecurity than white households in the district. Seniors, as we know, are experiencing new challenges um, with food insecurity during the public health emergency. Um, but even before uh, the public health emergency, um, district seniors were experiencing some of the highest food insecurity rates in the country at around 14% of our seniors. Um, I spoke about families with children, um, immigrants, um, experience about double the food insecurity rate as the general population, particularly undocumented immigrants who don't have access to federal assistance programs um, like SNAP um, and TANF. Um, and um, lastly, uh, food and hospitality sector workers, as we know this industry has been significantly affected um, and um, this workforce was already um, making about half of the area median income um, so uh, really a population dramatically affected, and we'll talk about that in some of our recommendations. And just also to mention before moving on, the intersectionality of these populations, so seniors raising grandchildren are particularly impacted. Next slide. So I'm going to outline some of the district's response. Um, Mayor Bowser's administration launched a robust response to the um, public health emergency really quickly. Um, DC Public Schools moved their entire operations to grab and go meals. Um, and these numbers are now a little dated, they're from July, but um, have served over 625,000 meals. Um, grocery, the grocery bag distribution program has operated at um, up to 13 sites across the district, and we've distributed over 30 or 25,000 bags, mostly fresh produce, with some of our partners who um, we'll speak later. Um, the senior meal delivery program through the Department of Aging and Community Living has moved their congregate meal program to all home delivery for over 6,000 seniors and they've distributed over 450,000 meals. The Get Help Hotline um, is a service that any resident can call who's um, quarantining um, and they can receive a 14-day uh, box of shelf-stable foods. Um, and then uh, last but not least, the Department of Human Services has greatly expanded our program for unsheltered individuals serving over, at this point, over 33,000 uh, meals to that population. Next slide. Uh, I also think it's critically important to talk about making sure that all eligible residents are enrolled in the federal benefits that they're eligible for. Pandemic EBT is a program for school-aged children um, uh, and uh, Aussie, in partnership with uh, Department of Human Services, were able to make sure over 46,000 children um, benefited from that program. It's now um, sunsetting at the end of September. Um, the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, SNAP, and the Women, Infants, and Children Supplemental Nutrition Program, or WIC, saw significant increases in large part due to the tireless efforts of our staff doing outreach and enrollment. Um, and the farmer's market programs, um, we were able to make sure that all uh, 33 markets that wanted to operate this year could operate safely. And because of that, um, both federal and local nutrition programs were able to operate at those markets. Next slide. Um, this is just a snapshot of the really robust uh, response of our nonprofit community. The district is incredibly lucky to have a well-coordinated, strong um, nonprofit community. I won't go through these numbers, but just to show you, um, this isn't even close to a full list of the nonprofits um, that have um, really acted quickly and stepped up to the moment um, to serve uh, many, many of our residents who are food insecure. And I'm looking forward to hearing from our partners um, in a bit. Next slide. So um, the report um, makes several recommendations. I'll only uh, highlight a few of them here. Um, in the short term, um, maximizing the federal nutrition programs, making sure that all of our um, eligible residents can enroll, um, expanding our public-private partnerships 
um, to uh, provide more uh, funding to our um, nonprofit organizations, particularly with a focus on um, small Black and Latinx-led organizations, since those are the populations most impacted by the virus here in DC. Um, leveraging the purchasing power of our public and private institutions, the district um, has been able to make several emergency procurement contracts with some of our small businesses and um, would love to see that work uh, maintained and expanded. Um, expanding transportation options. We hear a lot that people need rides to the grocery stores. Um, they could use um, more delivery of groceries for people who are scared to leave their home, particularly seniors. Next slide. Um, the report also makes more long-term food system change and planning recommendations. Um, number one is increasing healthy food options in Ward 7 and 8, um, which are currently underserved by grocery stores and other healthy food retail, with a focus on supporting our local Black-owned food businesses. Um, ensuring that all district government procurement um, is promoting health equity, environmental sustainability, and the local economy whenever we can. Um, implementing Mayor Bowser's strategy to strengthen the DC food workforce, um, which came out in January of this year and outlines a still um, more relevant than ever strategy to expand meaningful career pathways in the food sector. And then last, um, increasing affordable kitchen space um, and other infrastructure for our small food businesses to um, pivot their models, expand, serve um, their neighbors, but also um, keep their business and their workers on payroll. So with that, I'll stop. Um, you can find the full report and an executive summary at dcfoodpolicy.org slash foodsecurity2020. And uh, I'll turn it over to John to introduce our panelists again. Great. Uh, I actually had a question for you. So for folks who um, want to sort of help in the mission of the Food Policy Council, what's the best way to get engaged? Yeah, great question. So if you go to dcfoodpolicy.org, you can sign up for our listserv. We have public meetings every other month. We also have five working groups working on different aspects of the food system, including urban agriculture, food access, um, small business, and entrepreneurship. Um, so we uh, really encourage you to go to our website, get on our list, and um, start uh, joining our events and working with us. And um, the other question about the work that you're doing. So how much of the work that you're doing on the Food Policy Council uh, you know, is cross-agency? And what agencies do you work with most on that? That's a great question. Um, a lot of our work is cross-agency. Um, I think particularly during the public health emergency, we've worked closely with DC Health. Um, but uh, so many agencies are operating uh, food programs in one way or another. Department of Human Services administers the SNAP program and meal programs for the homeless. Um, Aussie and DCPS are working tirelessly to make sure there's nutritious meals for our children. I'm sure I'm going to forget Department of Small and Local Business is an amazing partner um, to help us work with um, food entrepreneurs and food businesses. Of course, DEMPED um, to work on increasing um, food retail and grocery store options and several others that I'm going to get in trouble for forgetting. But it's really a team effort and um, it's everybody's been working so hard to on this response. Well, thank you for mentioning DEMPED, although I didn't mean that to put you on the spot with that. I know one of the programs that we're working on uh, that we have a grant program to help with the food infrastructure is uh, the Neighborhood Prosperity Fund, uh, which invests in uh, uh, projects that will allow for more food retail uh, or restaurants uh, as uh, access points for food. Uh, so that's one that I know that we're going to work on soon. Um, and then what, um, what would you say is the kind of, because I think some of these numbers can be jarring. Mm -hmm. So how would you, if somebody's watching at home, they see these numbers, they see that they're somewhat jarring, how do you feel they should approach helping or how do you feel they should approach kind of this problem uh, that we know is kind of uh, going to be with us throughout the pandemic? Uh, they are jarring. Yeah, I, th I think they're devastating. Um, and I, you know, I don't think uh, we can we can get around that, uh, or should we? I think um, taking those feelings and finding the one way you're most able to contribute. Um, a lot of these organizations have volunteer opportunities. If you have the financial means to donate, especially to our um, our local organizations, um, that is incredibly helpful. Um, you can get involved with the Food Policy Council. 
Um, maybe you can mentor if you are a food business um, that that has been able to pivot. You can you can work with another business um, that's struggling. I think um, figuring out what you well, you have the skills and the time and the resources to do and, and jump in. Don't let the numbers um, keep you from finding even a small way to help. Yeah, and I think that's actually a good point that we shouldn't let the numbers kind of paralyze us, but more so motivate us uh, to do the work more. So why don't we bring in some of the partners that have been working with us. Actually, Ona, I'm gonna allow you to uh, bring them into the conversation because I know you work with them on a day-to-day -day basis. So you wanna bring them into the conversation? Uh, yes, I would love to. I do want to mention that HSEMA is the one agency I didn't mention who have led the grocery store and the Get Help hotline program during the public health emergency. So, And, and also, don't forget Chris Gelthart, who's helped and us Chris with Gelthart, yes. operations uh, for the Emergency Operations yes. Command. I know he would uh, definitely point it out if I didn't highlight the great work that he and DPW has done to fill in uh, on a role that they don't normally uh, fill in on. Yes, so. absolutely. Thanks, John. Um, yeah, so I'm going to turn it over first to Murray Lopez Humes, who's a Deputy Chief Program Officer at Martha's Table to hear more about their work. Thanks, Murray. Yes, thank you. Thank you for having us. Um, my name is Murray Lopez Humes, as Ona said, and I am the Deputy Chief Program Officer at Martha's Table. So for those of you that don't know Martha's Table, we support strong families, strong children, and strong communities. And we're really driven by the belief that every Washingtonian deserves the opportunity to thrive. We also are committed to ensuring increasing access to, health, to high quality education, health and wellness resources, and family resources in the District of Columbia. So you can go to the next slide. That's why for us, when COVID hit, it was so important that we doubled down on our mission. It's why we jumped out there and started a cash transfer program. We supported over 137 families with $9,000 over the course of four months. We also provided grocery gift cards, diapers, wipes, and formula, again, to assure that we were having a whole response to the entire family and supporting the family in that way. This led to an innovative partnership called Thrive East of the River that supports 500 families with cash, dry goods, groceries, and also um, help navigating uh, government and um, nonprofit programs to help families get resources. We also doubled down on our education program, ensuring we were supporting families with one-on-one -on -one conversations, including virtual circle time for our children and just having engaging activities. You can go to the next slide. And that's why it's also uh, our last component was um, with help from the Office of DC of Planning, we were able to meet the need of a 400% increase in groceries, which when you look at numbers and you talk about large numbers, it's about 200,000 bags of groceries were distributed in, since March for us. So that's just a large, overwhelming number. When you break it down to a day, we support about 2,000 people a day. And when you think about meals, the 200,000 Groceries equal about 2 million meals. So we have just realized during COVID how important our programs are and how essential they are. And we are grateful to the Mayor Bowser's administration for supporting us and continue to do this work to help families stay strong and sustained during this difficult time. Thank you. Thank you, Marae. I'll now turn it over to Chris Bradshaw, the Executive Director of Dreaming Out Loud. All right, thank you for having me today. Uh, Dreaming Out Loud's mission is to create economic opportunity within marginalized communities by building a healthy, equitable food system. Um, we have communities in crisis. We have responses being formed. And uh, one of the things I wanted to frame the conversation with is the fact that, you know, in our desire to shape an equitable recovery, we have to understand that the circumstances were not equitable to begin with. <clears throat> in our region, we have a racial wealth gap. White wealth is 81 times that of black wealth, and black wealth is slated to reach zero wealth by 2053, and that was pre-pandemic. If we're looking at those circumstances now, um, shoot, we might get there by 2023. Uh, we have folks that are hurting deeply. Uh, the unemployment rate is very high. Uh, I think that food can be, play a critical role because there are low barriers to entry to employment, but we have to make the investments. I think in all opportunities or all, in crises, there's opportunity, right? For us to reshape things and structurally restructure uh, the food system so that it can serve communities and can serve the recovery. Um, Dreaming Out Loud operates a two acre farm and food hub at Kelly Miller, located behind Lincoln Heights and uh, Kelly Miller Middle School. And so we are situated deeply within communities and can see the challenges and uh, 
but also are heartened by the responses that we've seen by our partners and by community members on the ground, from mutual aid groups to churches to community centers. I think it's been uh, an indicator of what um, what assets we have in the community uh, that we need to continue to, to uh, resource uh, to address these challenges. Uh, Dreaming Out Loud looks forward to uh, building this conversation about what inner recovery looks like and what we're seeing, but we appreciate the uh, partnership that we have with organizations at the table as well as the, as the city government. Yep. And last but not least, uh, Mike Curtin, uh, the executive director at DC Central Kitchen. Thanks, Ona, and thank you, John. Uh, it's great to be here again today with uh, Martha, one of our longest-term partners in the district, and I think Chris and his team at Dreaming Out Loud, we've probably done more work with them over the last six months than, than anyone, certainly. Uh, the D.C. Central Kitchen has been around in the, in the district now a little over 30 years, and while we have put tens of millions of meals into the community, our focus has always been on training, job training, working for people to get to a place of self-sufficiency who have, who have faced significant barriers to employment, but during this crisis, we've focused really on food. So as you can see on the first slide, uh, and this just is a quick little dashboard that sort of summarizes, practically speaking, the, the, the work that we've done over the last six plus months, uh, closing in on, on two million meals, that'll happen sometime next week. We just crossed the threshold of a million pounds of fresh fruits and vegetables in the grocery bags that we're distributing to families across the city. Uh, our Healthy Corners program, which distributes fresh fruits and vegetables in the corner stores, mostly in the city's food uh, apartheid areas. Uh, we're over, are getting close to 178,000 units of those and, and operating now in 168 sites. So as we, we drill down a little on that, on the, the next slide, uh, we can talk a little bit, not just about what we do, but, but why we're doing it. Um, focusing the, the meals, again, is our, our biggest area of, of concern right now. Um, Millions of meals going into uh, schools in wards six, seven, and eight, where we we're, we are engaged in school food production on a daily basis, pre and hopefully post pandemic. Um, tens of thousands of, of healthy meals to local shelters uh, and senior citizens and nonprofits, um, engaging to, to produce those meals. A lot of uh, farmers, black farmers, Latinx farmers, uh, that were struggling because a lot of their outlets for food has been cut off by the pandemic. Um, distributing, again, the 5,000 bags of fresh local produce a week that we were talking about, we actually engaged a partner who was a catering company who was desperately looking for business, rented some space to, uh, to, put, to, to house that unit or that production piece there so we could keep other people, other businesses, other food businesses that have supported us for so many years in business as well. Um, I mentioned the Healthy Corners uh, fresh produce program. Um, we deeply discounted all of that product, knowing that the, the dollars were not going to be in the community to buy that food, about 50%. Uh, and we also created an app. Now you can go to your app store or your Google store and um, search for Healthy Corners, and you can find where all our stores are and more information about the program, deliveries, other really cool things. And probably the thing that I'm most proud of um, is the fact that we've, we, we, we saw an incredible, and I think this is a really important part of the discussion too, a stunning uh, a level of support from the community, both the, the district, foundations, individuals, corporations. And while we'd like to think that we got this money because of the work we had done over the last 30 years, certainly a lot of people were just looking for a way to help, as we were talking earlier. Um, and we felt the best way that we could be true to those uh, wishes of those folks was to move that money throughout the community. So we've been able to partner with smaller nonprofits, subgrant, create uh, uh, service agreements that have put over between 150 and $200,000 back into the community to help uh, respond to this crisis. Uh, and all the while, we've been able to keep everyone at DC Central Kitchen employed that, that, needed, that wanted to be employed, that could be employed, uh, and were able to increase their wages to well above the district's living wage, maintain health insurance for those that needed to furlough for family or personal reasons um, to get through to this, this other side. So there was the, the, the last quick slide I just wanted to mention, because actually Ona was talking about this and John asked, that this has really been an opportunity for us to highlight the, the, the breadth of our relationship with the D.C. government, whether it's D.C. public schools, D.C. health, the Office of Planning and the, and the Food Policy Council, the Office of State Superintendent of Education, or the Department of Human Services have touched all parts of our work. And it's really been, uh, I think, a great opportunity to reflect on 
and to plan for the future how this public-private partnership really can work to respond to a crisis that none of us really anticipated, but we all need, we need to get through, to, through together. Um, I think you hit the nail on the head on ending that we all have to get through it together. That's something that Mayor Bowser has said over and over again. Want to uh, also open this up so that we can have folks who are watching uh, on social media, watching Channel 16, uh, or our, any of our streams that uh, you can join the conversation. If you're on the phone line, you could press zero now uh, and you can be connected with one of our uh, call takers. Uh, you could also uh, use the hashtag uh, DC Hope or just uh, chat in one of the uh, streams uh, as a way to enter the conversation with us. Uh, but I'll kick it off with a question uh, for, why don't I do this for the partners? Uh, in the last six months or during the pandemic, what's surprised you? What surprised you about sort of our work on this issue? Chris, it looks like you wanna jump in first. Um, what has surprised me? Um, that's a good question. Uh, I feel like I have been surprised by, and maybe I shouldn't be surprised. I was heartened by the way that folks pivoted and were able to respond quickly. Um, whether it was private sector partners or the DC government in terms of getting food out to people. You know, we work a lot with mutual aid groups and we were able to um, pair up our uh, uh, community work with folks like World Central Kitchen so that, you know, when things hit the ground, uh, we're able to plug them in with deeper community relationships than, than they typically, typically have as a larger organization. Um, I, I can't say that that surprised me, but I, it, it um, it made me feel like we had you know, more strength to fight when you have folks that are on your side in terms of working to support community members. So I guess one of the, the things that was surprising is, is how quickly things can just change completely. Yeah. I mean, th this was something that the, 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 the idea that our food system is, is stretched so thin, that, our, that food insecurity, that band of food insecure is growing and growing and growing. We've been having this conversation since, certainly since 2008 and quite frankly before that, but to see it just snap literally overnight was I think stunning. Uh, and, and I think ultimately that has opened up the opportunity to have this larger conversation that Chris so rightly pointed out is we, we, we are in this problem because we started from a place of problem. We, we started at a place of inequity and exclusion and inequality, and that has led to this, this tragedy that we're now trying to work through together. Yeah, I would add for us, I mean, I think we all talked about it with the increased numbers. It's just that how the numbers continue to increase and the need is so great. But I'd also add the resilience of our community. I know we all have a ton of stories about how folks are still just remaining positive, accessing the resources, and really just continuing to support, I think has been the biggest surprise for us, but also just the continued increase in numbers and the need. All right, so I probably started you guys out with the hardest question. <laughs> I'm gonna answer the easiest question, which is a question about uh, where uh, folks can find the slides. Uh, generally, what we do is we put all these presentations uh, up on the coronavirus.dc.gov slash recovery. So if you go to that page, uh, that's where you'll do it. And as the host, I get to take the easy questions. Now a hard one. I'll give this one to Ona. Uh, this was another uh, person who called into the phone line and uh, asked, uh, so what is the task force looking to do to expedite uh, full service grocery stores, uh, specifically in Ward 7 and 8, uh, where there are food deserts uh, and where the current pandemic has affected families so profoundly? Yeah, um, that's a great question. And I do think um, the public health emergency has, again, underscored the urgency of a conversation we've been having um, a long time about how um, inequitably distributed grocery stores are um, currently in the district. There are three um, operating grocery stores in Ward 7 and 8 east of the river serving about 150,000 of our residents, um, whereas Ward 6 um, right on the other side of the river has um, 15 grocery stores, which is one for about every 8,000 residents. Um, Mayor Bowser's administration has already made progress um, to open new stores. Um, there are um, three new um, healthy food retail stores coming towards seven and eight um, that have been announced in the last um, year or so. Um, Good Food Markets in Ward 8, um, Market 7 in Ward 7, and the Lidl that will be coming towards seven. But we know that that's just the start. 
Um, the DC Food Policy Council is especially interested in supporting our homegrown businesses and um, with the partnership of DEMPED have been exploring um, different ways to um, support our um, local businesses and to expanding into providing more um, fresh food retail. Um, John mentioned the Neighborhood Prosperity Fund, which um, both Good Food Markets and Market 7 um, were grantees of and um, you know, really looking for, um, for ways to use some of our existing funding um, programs to, uh, to really focus on and target our um, uh, continuing um, challenge with food access. But um, we're making progress. I think um, I will say uh, I think we're in a tremendous opportunity where people are paying attention to this issue um, even more so than before the public health emergency. And I feel I feel optimistic um, about the progress we're going to make on on uh, food <coughs> in D.C. Um, Michael, you talked about how you've actually had uh, the opportunity to add uh, people to your job, uh, to your workforce. Uh, tell me, to we were talking about this a little bit earlier, how has your workforce kind of navigated uh, the pandemic? And obviously, they're interacting with a lot of people. So how have you kept everybody safe? Yeah, well, that that's a, a great um one of, one of the, 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 the most beautiful things about this whole experience has been seeing how our staff has reacted, responded. As I've said before, there hasn't been wringing of hands or, you know, asking why. Or, or There's just been this understanding that there is a job to do, an important job, and, and this incredible determination to get it done. Uh, I think one of the things that we did right away is what we, we uh, like, unlike some of our friends, we just feared we had so many volunteers coming in every day, we had to stop that. We had to rethink our training program so it was just kitchen folks in the kitchen and um, to be honest with you my, my wife works at NIH and she started telling me how they were potting different groups up in the ORs and the clinic in the clinics and I, although I didn't think we would be able to do it as good as NIH that's that that's the model we followed and so we potted all the groups up in the different facilities so um, we were really working in groups, not exposing each other to ourselves uh, and, and staying in those groups and staying in those shifts. Um, so we've been incredibly fortunate, as I said uh, to our group earlier, I'm, I'm nervous to talk about it because we've been so fortunate and kept, everyone has, has stayed healthy. Uh, I think there's something to the fact that everyone on our team has health insurance and that we inspire, or, or encourage people to use it. So I think that when you talk about larger issues coming out of this pandemic, universal health care, uh, access to health care, certainly is a big part of this larger conversation. Uh, so it, it's just you know, a, a lot of effort, a lot of team effort, uh, and a lot of um, recognition that if, 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 we don't, if we don't take this seriously and get sick, there's going to be an even bigger problem. And the team has just responded beautifully, and I, I couldn't be more proud of them. Well, I know at Martha's Table, you have folks coming in at all ages, uh, including some of our littlest residents. So how have you kind of addressed safety uh, while you provide services uh, in everything from food to childcare? How do you kind of address that? Yeah, so immediately, well, Martha's Table for us, team safety is, is paramount, pre-COVID and then during COVID. So as soon as um, in March when COVID hit, we immediately shifted to an opt-in schedule, and I'm speaking specifically to our food distribution efforts, where team members opted in. Um, nobody is required to come on site to do any of the food distribution. It's all voluntary. And we made sure we moved all of our operations to our commons location, which is much larger and allows social distancing and spacing for volunteers and team members. We follow all of the DC Health and CDC guidelines, of course. We increased our sanitation. We provide masks and gloves. And similar to what Mike said, just extremely proud of the team's response and just everybody adhering and people coming in with positive attitudes and willing to support. And that's specifically for our food distribution. Our education programs were on site for um, from July to August, and we did the same. We followed all Aussie and CDC health guidelines to ensure that our children and our team members were um, safe in the classroom from temperature checks to required masks to everything that they put out. Um, and we had a really good experience. We have switched to a virtual model for our children at this point um, where they have um, interactions with their teachers on uh, a daily basis. We're looking to bring them on site for engaging play dates. But the biggest thing for us was just the team really responding and adhering to all of the guidelines that we put in place. And uh, sticking with you for the uh, education component, mm -hmm. uh, there's also a lot of education that we have to do about food security um, or food insecurity. Mm -hmm. So 
how do you how do we reach kind of the broader audience of residents who maybe don't even know that they are food insecure and maybe are less likely to come forward for help so how do we reach those audiences and i know uh, you spent five years as a principal I at did. DCPS. I did. Thank yeah. you for the service <laughs> there too. So, how do we educate people about what it means to be food insecure and how to come uh, utilize the resources that we have? Right. So, I think that's twofold. From the education perspective um, and working with young children, I think it's essential. We know that you know having access to healthy food is key and essential, especially for our children and families east of the river. So it's important to ensure that they have food access. But I think the other component is ensuring that we are teaching them healthy behaviors from a young age. So really having children engage in behaviors that connect them with healthy food. So when we're designing our programs like our joyful food markets, we take that into consideration and we provide recipes and healthy activities for children and families to engage in so they have a joyful experience with healthy food. I think the other part is when people do come, when you're saying people don't always come to access the resources, one of the things that is key to Martha's Table and just part of what we do is treating people with dignity and respect. So I think we've learned even during COVID that it's essential that you treat people with dignity and respect. And for us, that means removing the barriers. So of course, it's educating people, like getting the word out, letting them know where we are and what we have to offer. But it's also removing any barriers. So for example, when you come to MT, if you're picking up a grocery bag, you don't have to fill out any form. You don't have to you know, prove your income or anything like that. You come, you're greeted with a smile, you pick up a bag or two, and you know, you're on your way. And we feel like that's really why we've had such a great impact um, and people wanna come back. Because often there's a stigma attached to accessing resources and we wanna ensure we remove that and make it an enjoyable experience. Absolutely, and for Dreaming Out Loud, you have uh, students who get a hands-on experience uh, with the farm experience that you have. Tell us a little bit more about that and kind of what are their reactions? What do they come out with from the program that you uh, run? Yeah, absolutely. So situated behind Kelly Miller Middle School, we're able to reach uh, 400 students directly there on campus, but the farm is also a learning space for the community at large. So we're able to host school groups that can come learn about composting, come learn about the food system. We're hoping to introduce animals. We had chickens uh, hatched in the classrooms as well. So we're able to engage with the teachers and the parents. Um, and grandparents. We're also situated by Lincoln Heights and Clay Terrace, and we are really fortunate to have, to have incredible team members from the community who live in that neighborhood and can pull more folks in. Um, during the pandemic, we've also been fortunate to utilize those community networks to let people know about what uh, food options are available. Um, we're distributing about 1,300 shares per week of our Black Farm CSA. So they can, folks uh, in the community and the kids can see black farmers growing their food, but also they can know that in that bag that their you know, family member may come pick up at our farmer's market or one of the other 20 community-based sites where we're running uh, the CSA, that that, farm, that food is grown by farmers that look like them and there's a story to tell and for them to connect with and their heritage about um, their food ways and how to be healthier and also these deeper conversations about how we can use food as a recovery tool. Um, with Produce Plus and the launch of the Black Farm CSA, we were able to hire uh, five additional community members uh, from Ivy City, from uh, Clay Terrace, uh, reaching deeply into the community to be able to bring people into economic opportunity through the food system. We were also able to um, pull in our food makers. We have a food entrepreneurship program called uh, DREAM, which is Dreaming Out Loud's Ready for Entrepreneurship Accelerator Modules. It's a cute acronym, but a long title, um, but big impact. So our producers were able to make uh, more than 45,000 emergency meals over the course of uh, the height of the pandemic as well, um, generating more than $350,000 in contracting to um, make those meals. And so we're able to support four black women owned businesses and 15 food workers is a really big impact, especially when those community members or those workers are from the communities where we're, where we're training folks and where we're reaching people. Absolutely. And for DC Central Kitchen, you've had a real connection with the hospitality uh, and, and restaurant industry, but that's an industry that's hurting right now. So how have you kind of kept that connection, but how have they sort of been able to support at a time where they need support themselves? Yeah, the, the, it's tragic what's happening to the restaurant community, not just here in Washington, DC, but, but all around the country. 
this is one of the cornerstones of our community. Just about everyone has probably worked in a restaurant or that industry at some point. If not, they I think they should. Um, so, what? Um, one of the we've been able to reach out to a couple restaurants to pick up uh, to outsource some of the meals that we didn't have the capacity to produce in-house just because of the labor intensity of everything that we're doing. So we were able to support a few places in that way so they could keep staff on or bring some staff back, pay their rent. We did that again with uh, a catering facility as well. Uh, we continue our very close work with uh, Restaurant Association, Metropolitan Washington. I was the chair of that back in. Uh, in 2001, actually, uh, when we were dealing with another crisis here in the hospitality sector. Um, one of the things that we want to make sure that we can do is support the industry now so that when we get through this, our graduates will have an industry to, in which to work. Uh, and, and that's been really key. So our event this year, our, our, our first virtual gala, uh, will be a, a little bit of a twist, but we will be focusing on ways that everyone, including DC Central Kitchen, can actually support the restaurant industry and keep that industry moving forward uh, until we get through this. Uh, and we had a question on social media about Martha's Table and their work on the direct uh, cash assistance. Uh, what kind of inspired that and are there any early learnings from it? Um, yeah, so I have to give um, credit to our CEO, Kim R. Ford, who we know they've existed for a while, but she was really the driver behind us jumping out there and just doing it. And of course, our board supported us. Um, we really, when we made the decision to switch to virtual, we never closed. We really wanted to, as I said before, double down on our mission and support families. Um, it came from, we made a contract with families that we were going to be open and provide care for their children, and now we were breaching that contract. So how are we going to be able to to support them um, and that's really where it came from is just us all really wanting to support the families um, some early learning I mean you saw um, it then turned into the thrive east of the river initiative that has other partners involved which is now supporting 500 families um, with like I said cash dry goods groceries we really saw that um, had a true impact on families we did a survey of our families that participated in it back in the spring, and 94% of them spent the money on housing and utilities, and 87% of it spent it on food. And the key component of the cash transfers that I think we've learned and we're adamant about from the beginning is that they were flexible, so that families can use the money as they see fit, not a conditional cash transfer like this must be for your rent or your mortgage. Um, we really found that it helped out families and we had an amazing response. Um, there's so many stories of families that were able to just really remain on their feet. All the responses and the feedback we got were so positive and grateful for Martha's Table to step out and help families during this time. Absolutely. I think uh, one thing that's been uh, surprising for me, I guess I didn't answer the question, I should have answered it too, is just kind of that spirit of cooperation that's carried us through the pandemic. Um, and at, uh, you know, I see that play out sort of uh, with our streeteries when we talk about all the agencies that usually have to review those permits, they've all stepped up and made it as simple as possible for people to find a way to keep people employed, to keep serving customers and to keep our economy going. And I think that you're describing that spirit of cooperation too today that we all need to kind of make sure that even after pandemic that we continue to kind of embrace. So I say that also just to kind of, we're kind of running uh, to the end of our time. So I wanted to kind of get your final thoughts uh, and I'll start off uh, with Ona to actually give us a kind of final thought on the report um, and just sort of what uh, we should glean from it and what, uh, again, people can do to kind of involve themselves in addressing this big problem. Yeah, thanks, John. Um, I think if you were gonna take one thing away from the report, it's that um, our food insecurity rates are, are very elevated. They um, likely are going to be for a while. They'll track our unemployment rates um, rather, than, rather than the length of the public health emergency. And um, that, like I said before, I think there's um, so many ways to get involved. Don't let the numbers um, daunt you, um, particularly for our target populations, um, seniors, um, immigrants, um, black residents, children. Um, there's organizations that, um, that are focused on serving those communities and um, please, please jump in and get involved. Um, I'll also say I, I do think um, there's some 
uh, uh, fatigue, you know, I think we, we were talking about before, we're all feeling it, this has been going on for a long time, but um, these organizations aren't leaning into their, that fatigue, they're, they're um, really moving um, forward. I think our government staff are um, tirelessly moving forward and um, just to encourage you, if, if you have been helping out, um, if you're feeling tired, um, find a new way that energizes you and, and keep on keep on doing it because I think we're going to, we're going to need that help um, in the long term. And I think Ona too, one of the things that is the simplest way people can help is to just have a conversation. If you know somebody who's in need mm -hmm. to actually just share what resources are available. I think when you have that need, it's kind of hard to navigate it sometimes and just letting people, I think we have to almost destigmatize mm -hmm. uh, food insecurity and have these important conversations. Uh, and share the resources with folks. That's, so we'll, yeah. we'll stay on that uh, one. I, I love that point. And, and Chris briefly brought up the mutual aid groups. I think um, really, I, I love the model of just like turning to your neighbor and saying, what do you need and bringing it to them and, and decentralizing this a bit. Um, you know, we will all keep doing our efforts, but um, I think those are really inspiring models and, and making sure you know and are friends with your mutual aid group um, wherever you live in the district. So why don't we uh, bring in our panelists to help close us out. I'll start with Michael since uh, he's been around the longest. <laughs> <laughs> so we'll give him the first final word and we'll work our way down the line. Well, I, I guess, John, what, what I really hope is that th there is indeed uh, a silver lining that comes from this very dark cloud we're all living in right now. And, and that part of that is going to be a recognition that we are indeed in, in, this, in this existence together. Uh, and that there are some real problems with, with our community as it exists. There's inequities that have made, uh, you can see it across our country, uh, as I said earlier, things change so quickly for so many and, and people that we never imagined that happening for. So I hope now people can, when, when people have had an experience of going to a grocery store um, in, in Ward 6 or in nor Upper Northwest and never having to worry about seen everything they wanted to buy. And all of a sudden they were in there like, what do you mean I can't get everything I want right now? This is a reality for a significant part of our community. Uh, and we have to build in the resiliency going forward uh, so, so we, we, we can get past these things together. But I think the, the lesson for me today, listening to all of this and, and working with everyone on this, this panel, is that we, we can do it, right? We, we, we know how to do this. Um, but we really need the larger support and recognition from the community to understand why we're doing this. And that this is serious, serious work. It's not charity. It's not an afterthought. This is the economic future of our community and our country. Yeah, I would say that, um, again, where there's crisis, there's opportunity. And we have to take this opportunity to have, you know, deep discussions about the structural changes that we need. Uh, we talk openly about the need for reparations at the federal level. We're all talking about these sets of systems that are driven by uh, our history. You know, 400 years of, of slavery and exploitation drives the racial wealth gap, which drives the health differences, which drives the inability to maintain a grocery store from an economic standpoint. Um, in the communities that we're talking about. And so as we're shaping these responses, we have to bring community to the table and bring opportunities for people to have ownership of the system, of the things that govern their lives. I mean, actual ownership, you know. Um, so much of this nation's wealth is built on real estate. Even in our work, if we were to look around at our funders, many of them are from the real estate community. And if you look at the opportunities that we have in the district to uh, rethink the way that we are utilizing the assets that we have for community resources. Um, we need to do that and we need to do that deeply. Uh, we have the opportunity to retrain people now. You know, the, the model of food distribution, of food production looks different than it did when it started. So how do we retool people and look at things like universal basic income that could be used to stabilize folks um, while we're transitioning to whatever's after this. And then being realistic about the policy that's needed to put guardrails in place for people. Um, people face uh, exploitation, they face uh, theft of wages, a lot of different things that have been whittled away in, in, uh, in a lot of areas of our civic life, right? And so we have to, have to, 
reiterate the need for those things uh, and strengthen them at the policy level and have conversations about what those what those things need to be. Yeah, I mean, I completely agree with everything my colleagues have said. Um, I think out of crisis, as you mentioned, comes opportunity and innovation. I know at Martha's Table, that's something that our CEO is pushing too, is looking at our programs and how can we be innovative in how we distribute food. Things have already shifted and changed. How are we meeting the need? But I'd also piggyback on Ona's comment of not letting the numbers discourage you and really thinking about the little things that you can do. Sometimes it can be overwhelming to see those large numbers and really kind of like take that in, but just taking the little steps. I'd be remiss if I didn't say you could sign up to volunteer um, at Martha's Table, um, at marthastable.org slash volunteer. But if that's something that you could do, or like you said, starting the conversation, just not to be discouraged and do the little things you can do during this time. No, thank you all for uh, your uh, contribution to today's conversation, but more so to your contribution to the work that you do every day. Uh, we really appreciate it. Uh, early on in the pandemic, uh, it was probably about six weeks into it, uh, which seems like almost years ago now, but uh, we were six months into it. And I remember uh, Mayor Bowser was in the Emergency Operations Command, and she took some time with Michael Rupert uh, from Ofto to talk about the website and sort of understand what the web traffic was like on coronavirus.dc.gov. Uh, and the number one tab that got the most traffic was our tab about food, right? So people wanted to know, and we knew then that food was gonna be something that was so important for us to uh, manage through the pandemic. And so uh, I'm glad we had this conversation today when Ona and the team were talking about how we would present uh, the report on food security and food insecurity. Uh, it was important that we not only uh, release the numbers and talked about where we are and really have a transparent view of what we have to do, uh, but that we also had all of you with us today to show that uh, what the mayor has talked about is we're not just in the business of delivering services, but we also have to deliver hope. So I wanna thank you all for being here today in order to uh, bring to the public more about what we're doing in order to address this really large problem. So for folks who are watching and who have been uh, listening in, you can see all the resources that we discussed today at coronavirus.dc.gov. Thanks for joining us, continue to be safe and have a great day.